Well, in recent weeks in our online services here at Grace, we've been walking through the Upper Room Discourse from John chapter 13 to 17, and we're going to be returning to that next week, finishing that upside-down series, how appropriate in the world that we live in, in the month of June. Today, though, we're going to take a little bit of a detour, although I think by the end you'll realize it was hardly a detour at all. For those of us who have church background, uh, either as children or earlier in our adult lives, many of us grew up in what might be called low church backgrounds. By, by low church, I mean that uh, churches have a, a regular pattern of worship, but it's contemporary in flavor, relatively casual, modest amounts of spontaneity, uh, normal clothing for pastors, whatever that is, and a few bells and smells. Most, the most extreme forms of low church, and I say that in quotes, might be Pentecostal churches, though most evangelical churches, including like ours, are typically called low or lower churches. It's not a value assessment. It's a, a way that we interact when we gather. High churches, by contrast, are marked by a whole lot more formality, and some of you know that from your backgrounds. You might, re, you might have heard of them referred to as liturgical churches, which is a misnomer because every church as it gathers in worship has a liturgy, has a, a way of going about things. Sometimes it's just more assumed in churches rather than explicit in a worship program or set up front. Here's how I know that you think that. Because some of you have already noticed that we only sang one song earlier, and you're wondering, that's a little odd, isn't it? Don't we normally, and you fill in the blank, don't worry, you'll have more opportunity at the end. There's a normal pattern. There's a liturgy. High churches make their liturgy explicit. Formal music, not much spontaneity, special clothing for the clergy, and lots of bells and smells. Roman Catholic churches are probably the highest of high church liturgy. Uh, many Lutherans and Episcopals, some Methodists, Presbyterians as well. That brings us to today. High churches tend to follow what's called the church calendar. And on that calendar, seven weeks after Easter is celebrated Pentecost Sunday. Actually, 49 days later, although Pentecost means 50. And today is Pentecost Sunday for Christians around the world. And many of them are going to explicitly highlight it. And so will we, and appropriately so. And to be honest, in light of our current series, in light of the cultural climate we're in, in light of the pandemic that we're enduring, I can hardly think of another biblical passage and theme that is more timely than this. And I think you'll see why. Turn your Bibles, I hope you brought them or have them on some device, to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be reading that in sections today. Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Now, a passage like this, since it's rather long, deserves multiple weeks. We're only going to spend one week on it. But our focus today is going to be on the significance of Pentecost Sunday. And it may be a familiar story to you. It was one of our favorites in a uh, summary Bible that we used with our kids when they were younger. The Read With Me Bible, an NIRV story Bible for children. And I like this even more than the kids because the pictures were utterly fascinating. I mean, look at that. You got to ask yourself, what's going on there? And that's the whole point. I want to invite us to listen with fresh ears to this today. And I hope to highlight enough details 
so that we understand the foundation of the story and can grasp its significance. And like other events in history, the power in this is not just what happened in the event, but the significance of that beyond it. The central figure of Pentecost is the Holy Spirit, who is essential not only for the believer, but also for the church of Jesus Christ. British statesman John Sott said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. And as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. That's how important the Holy Spirit is for us. You can follow along in your Bibles and also online if you want to see a sermon uh, summary or outline, gracepolaris.org slash guide. You can go there even now and follow along as today we look at the experience or the event of Pentecost, the explanation of Pentecost, and then the exhortation or the call to response at Pentecost. First of all, the experience. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'll read there. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They, the disciples, saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. A little background here. The Jews were all in Jerusalem for this big feast that they celebrated regularly, the Feast of, the feast of Weeks or of Harvest. It was a special holiday for Jews that had been celebrated since way back in the time of Moses. It's highlighted in Deuteronomy chapter 16 where it's prescribed. And in Exodus 23, we read that this is actually a first fruits celebration. Thus, Feast of Harvest. The holiday looks forward to this coming plentiful harvest for those people. And so this communal celebration is kind of a foretaste of the goal. That idea of foretaste or first fruits becomes very important symbolically in what we see in Acts chapter 2. So here we are with Jews from all over the known world gathering together to celebrate a holiday like they had many times before. You can relate. But this customary reunion where you thought you knew what would happen turned into this far greater event then called Pentecost. And on this day, the entire trajectory of world history would be changed because of what happened, because of a divinely arranged miracle. Life would never be the same for thousands of them there, and it would never be the same 
for millions of people up through today. And that includes many of us. If you look closely at the text there, the events of Pentecost are fairly simple in their description, though revolutionary to be sure. Luke spends just three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, to describe what happened. First of all, there was a powerful tornado-like wind, we might say, that came from heaven and inhabited this house or this location where the disciples were gathered. They were huddled together. They were, they were uncertain. That There was some fear because Jesus had just ascended. And they didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't know what they should do. They just know that Jesus was gone and he told them to wait. They were full of anxiety. Sounds like most of us today, doesn't it? What in the world is going on? And what's the future look like? Second thing Dr. Luke describes there, tongues of fire rested on each of them, whatever that means. We weren't there. I'd love to see a video. Third, each of them began to speak in other languages. And Luke tells them, tells us that this was possible, this was enabled because of the Holy Spirit who had filled them. And that's it. The, the event of Pentecost was a very peculiar sound. It was a fiery sight, and it was a miracle of language, all produced, enabled by the Holy Spirit's power to the disciples of Jesus and through them to a mesmerized crowd. Now, as we said, this crowd had gathered Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the Mediterranean world, and it was a very, very cosmopolitan gathering. The, the first disciples of Jesus, though, were what we might call country bumpkins. These were Galileans from the hillsides of Galilee. I've been to Galilee a year ago, and its idyllic beauty is stunning. Some of you have been there. To me, the region around Galilee is like a miniature version of the Swiss Alps. But apparently, the people who live there and the people who live in the Swiss Alps were regarded rather similarly. The, the, the people who live in Switzerland in the Alpine region are known for many things, but, but being cosmopolitan is not one of them. Pr provincial is the word that would come to mind. E even in the way they speak their language with its sing-songy rhythm. Uh, perhaps it was the disciples of Jesus from Galilee who were regarded in a similar way. Their, their Aramaic language, their rusty Greek, was probably humorous for the people who heard them until they began to hear them speak in their own language. When they began to speak languages from all over the known world, shock took over. And the most arresting aspect of this Pentecost was that these first disciples of Jesus, most of whom were from Galilee, were able to speak in languages that they hadn't learned. In some of your Bibles, it's translated tongues. One word in Greek, it literally means the word tongue, but also metaphorically means a language. Uh, and, and Luke makes clear here that this was a known language. They weren't just babbling. They were speaking in languages that they hadn't learned that others understood because it was their language. There was a miracle of speaking, not of hearing. It was a supernatural ability to speak in languages that they hadn't yet learned. 
We have to see a larger purpose here, though. We can get lost in the discussion of what tongues or languages are here. But the point that Luke makes is that Pentecost symbolizes a new unity that transcends, get this, racial, national, and linguistic barriers. So apropos for today. You want to know the ultimate answer to human relationships and community in the midst of division? It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the game changer of life. And Pentecost makes that obvious here. Sot says again, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly that this, the multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom of Christ have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate, dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. Remember Genesis chapter 11, way back at the beginning of the Bible, at the Tower of Babel, the languages were all mixed up and confused. People were scattered. And here in Jerusalem, this language barrier is overcome through the unity in Jesus Christ. And it not only is fascinating then, but it points forward to the day in which people from every nation, every tribe, people and language will gather in his name. And the people who saw this couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't figure out what was going on. It was too bizarre. They had to come up with some alternative reason here. They couldn't just say, well, it was an act of God. It's unbelievable in their mind. It's too convenient of an excuse. So they had to find another explanation. People do that all the time in our day. Well, it can't be of God. So what can we assign it to? We see the explanation beginning in verse 14. Peter, speaking for the other disciples, later called apostles, explains what just happened. And he explains it with three things. Number one, the prophecy of Joel from the Old Testament. Second thing, because of God's sovereignty. And thirdly, because of Jesus' identity. Joel's prophecy, God's sovereignty, Jesus' identity. Let's investigate here. Verse 14, Joel's prophecy. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Most people don't get drunk at nine. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Peter is saying quite clearly that the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Look at a couple details here. Joel, back in the Old Testament, is actually prophesying about what he calls the last days. And Peter says, the last days have arrived. Many people, including in our day, speak of the last days and the end times as something exclusively future. Wrong. 
Peter says that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the last days have begun. And that ought to change how we sometimes think about last days and end times. Folks, you're in them. Joel is, is speaking of certain events that were not only future to him, though, not only future at Pentecost, but still remain future to us. So last days are ongoing. Verses 19 and 20, look there closely, point to that. So what are you to make of these comments, this prophecy? Simply put, the Spirit of God has ushered in the last days as an era of time, and you and I are living in it. Some of those have already taken place at Pentecost. Some of them are taking place, and some of them remain yet future. Theologians call this the already not yet of the Bible. The end times have already begun, but they're not yet complete. The Holy Spirit has already appeared, but his work is not yet finished. And by quoting Joel here, Peter makes clear to the Jews, his fellow Jews, that this movement is not a new religion. As Pastor Dan Green said, as we gathered earlier this week, Peter's whole description is to validate the fulfillment of all that Old Testament history has predicted. What you heard about, here it is. The arrival of Jesus, the, the appearance of the Holy Spirit is the capstone of God's revelation. And that revelation is both a warning and an invitation. It's a warning because judgment is coming. God's revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself fully in his promised Holy Spirit. So there are no more excuses, Peter says, and he'd tell us that today. God is looking for a response. But it's an invitation, too. It's an invitation to trust God, revealed in Jesus Christ, that you and everyone else can be saved from judgment and condemnation by trusting in that Christ. See, this is the masterstroke of what God's doing in salvation. God's busted open the doors at Pentecost. One of our study Bibles says it well, the hallmark of God's final salvation is the outpouring of the Spirit on all people, get this, regardless of gender or age or social status. Salvation's offered to all, everyone, who would call on the name of the Lord. Or in our language, I like how Tony Evans says it, African-American pastor in Dallas, there are no believers in Acts relegated to the back of the spiritual bus. There were no second-class Christians then, and there are none today. Whosoever will may come. Second thing Peter says, God is sovereign. He's got their attention by quoting from the Old Testament here, and now he goes deeper into the person of Jesus. He, he knows that they're listening along, wondering, well, what do we make of this Jesus then? What, wasn't this Jesus crucified as a criminal just weeks ago? Aren't there some crazy people walking around saying that he's been resurrected? How, how does that Jesus fit into these cosmic plans of God? And Peter begins to connect the dots, verses 22 to 24, that this is all part of God's plan, and yet at the same time, you, Peter says, are guilty to his fellow Jews. God's sovereignty, human responsibility together. Read with me, verse 22. 
fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He's saying you just lived it. You can't deny it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amen? David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter appeals to their experience of this Jesus man in their midst. And he shows how the wonderful plan of God and the awful evil of men fit together in history. In this great paradox, the death of Jesus carried out by wicked men was all along part of God's deliberate plan. The people back then, followers of Jesus, must have thought that the earth had spun off its axis. What is going on? God has lost control. No. Peter affirms both God's sovereignty over the events of history and human culpability, responsibility, guilt for evil actions. And then he quotes from Psalm 16, my favorite psalm, a psalm of King David, where David expresses his confidence in the Lord's presence, hope in the Lord's deliverance. He says his heart is glad and that his joy is full. Why? Because God's in control. Do you believe that? David might not have known the significance of what he wrote then or what would come later, but David, I think, speaks better than he knew. And Peter then gets to what David was referring to, the identity of Jesus Christ. Verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. What did David know, by the way, as he wrote this psalm? We don't know. But I'm fairly confident of at least two things. Number one, he trusted God that he would fulfill his promise. And number two, King David didn't know how. But Peter did because he had just seen it firsthand. And this amazing event at Pentecost was like a giant neon sign in history that God would fulfill his promise to his people. See, the Spirit is evidence that Jesus was raised and reigns with God, and God works through his Son and gives his Spirit. Verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life, Peter goes on, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Don't you see, Peter says. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here's the punchline. Therefore... 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ or Messiah. I'll admit I'm dumbstruck because I listen to Peter. I say, can you say that? That's bold. That's strong. That's convicting. Peter says here that God has supernaturally acted in the life of Jesus. That God is the grand conductor of everything in history. That, that humanity was blind and evil when they crucified this Jesus because they didn't recognize who he was. That humanity, they and we, are, are guilty because of what we've done to that one and only son. But Jesus, because of his resurrection, has proven what God said in the first place. Jesus is Lord of the universe, and he's the promised Messiah of God's people. Paul says later in Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Here it is. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, as to his flesh, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see it? Do you see it, Peter says? God's done the ultimate show and tell in Jesus. And everyone then and now owes God a response. Everyone. And that includes us. So what do you say to a God like that, Peter says? How do you respond to a Jesus who's done that? The exhortation, the call to response, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and a few of them were added to that number that day. 3,000. Wow. Peter says, Luke says here, they were cut to the heart. The idea here is to be pierced or stung or, or, or pricked. And metaphorically, it means to be convicted, to be exposed, to be shown as, as guilty. Remember last week, John chapter 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit would come and he would convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And there it is. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been pierced in your heart? Have you ever so understood the gospel of the person of Jesus that you were stopped in your tracks? Do you, do you know what it means to be convicted? Convicted that you were made in the image of God and loved by him and accountable to him. Convicted that you're a sinner who's rejected God's involvement in your life and, and, and you're guilty before him. Convicted that Jesus lived the perfect life that you should but haven't. And died the death that you should but haven't yet. And was raised from the dead in power so that you don't have to die if you trust him. 
Have you ever responded to that conviction, to those truths about Jesus? It's the essence of the gospel, and God appeals to you like he did through Peter to those people 2,000 years ago. Peter's reply here is straightforward. Look there. Repent and be baptized. Receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. This call to response is inherent in the gospel. Familiarity with, with Jesus won't cut it. Salvation requires a relationship with him. It's not just a collection of truths that we acquire about him. It's a call to respond. It's not like one of our staff members who recounted to me her experience growing up in church where they where she said, they told me all the facts about Jesus, but they never told me how to respond and that I needed to. Peter tells his listeners here both, and he speaks to you and he speaks to me as well. Listen closely. A response to this Jesus is critical. Verse 38. Repentance and faith or believing, trusting, same idea, are the biblical required responses to Jesus to be saved. The need to believe is implied in the command to repent and also in the command to be baptized. Again, one of our excellent study Bibles, the ESV study Bible says this, the gospel can be summarized in different ways, and we know that. Sometimes faith alone is named as the one thing necessary for salvation. Other times repentance alone is named, and sometimes both of them are named. But genuine faith always involves repentance and vice versa. Or as a New Testament professor from Dallas Seminary in our day says, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance stresses the starting point for the need for forgiveness. I'm going down a dead end road. Whereas faith is the resulting trust and understanding that this forgiveness comes from God in Christ. Peter speaks of baptism here as the expected response of someone who's repented and believed. And we know, if we know our Bibles, that baptism isn't required for salvation. Peter makes that clear in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where he tells them to repent and nothing about baptism because baptism doesn't save. But baptism is the natural result, the expected result of a saved person. And the willingness to be baptized is an outward declaration of what's already happened inside. Someone who's not baptized is like someone who's married but refuses to wear a ring, refuses to confess his or her status. It's bizarre. It lacks credibility. Baptism declares, God has saved me in Jesus Christ. Are you a believer? Have you been baptized? Does the world know to whom you belong? These listeners that day responded in repentance and faith. They were baptized, 3,000 of them in a day. That's a phenomenal response. That's a gospel harvest. That's a baptism for the ages. I have no idea how they did that. But that's what happens when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is convicting hundreds, thousands of people, one by Has your heart been convicted? Have you responded in repentance and faith? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you? See, the Holy Spirit has come, and he's the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. 
He's the forecast of what God was going to do and is doing in our age. That the harvest has come, that it will be completed, that the reaping is now. And the question is, are you, am I an example of God's harvest? And are we witnesses to a watching world? We're not looking for another Pentecost in our day. Pentecost was a one and done event. Spirit came to indwell God's people and has never left. And every person who's repented and believed has the Spirit of God living in them. And the Spirit has inaugurated, has begun a new era in God's work, showing God's presence and His power. And the Spirit propels us to the ends of the earth with that message. And God chooses to use those people, you and I, if we know Jesus as his messengers, to live the gospel, to speak the gospel, so that there will be millions of people in the course of history who will be awakened to their sin and to their guilt. Like Peter said, so we say. And as a result of God's sovereign work in the hearts of people, that individuals from every tribe and tongue, nation and people will be gathered before the throne of God in worship forever. But in another sense, we're looking for Pentecost today because our world needs it. It may be a one-and-done event, but the effects of Pentecost, oh, we need them today. Like Peter, we proclaim a gift that God's giving right now. It doesn't last forever, but the call to respond is urgent. Like Peter, we, we appropriate the the Spirit's power in our lives to declare that Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah. That this pulsating power and courage of the Holy Spirit can't be stopped within us. We have to tell others. What about especially in this moment where people are, are looking around wondering who's in control? What's going on? Where goes my life? Are we speaking? Like, like Peter and the disciples, the Spirit motivates us to care well for one another. At the end of Acts chapter 2, it describes how those original believers and those added to their number cared for each other. How you and I care for each other during this time speaks volumes to a watching world that says, and you get along, and, and you sacrifice, and you love. Like Peter, we recognize that what we see with our eyes isn't all that's happening that God's in control of history, and that though it may look like chaos to us, God knows exactly what he's doing, and we can have confidence. Like Peter and the disciples, you and I are sent to the ends of the earth with our funds, with our prayers, with our mobilization efforts, and yes, even with our lives, because the world has got to know who Jesus is. We don't get all bent out of shape about this party or that party, this election or that election. We're part of the Jesus party, and that's our mantra. And like Peter and the disciples, we recognize that the grace of God isn't prejudiced to ethnic groups, skin colors, or socioeconomic status. That people with all the diversity that God's made are made in his image and need the grace of God. Do you believe that? comes in Jesus Christ through his spirit.
See, the spirit-indwelled people were undeterred by the threat of opposition, by the threat of persecution, or of martyrdom because they knew who was king. They knew who would win. And that animated everything about their lives, starting at Pentecost. They were fearless. They were bold. They were unashamed. And they say to us, will we take advantage in our time of this renewed awareness of death and of a world out of control. In a time of, of COVID pandemic and a time of chaos in our culture, to say, look to Jesus. He's the hope. He's the answer. See, if we do those things, friends, we're not going to care whether we're high church or low church. We'll be gospel church in the Spirit's power for the fame of Jesus. It gives us confidence in unsettled, chaotic times because we know the future. The person and the power of Pentecost is alive in us today. Let's pray. God, these are interesting times, fascinating times, even fearful times. But they're not times that take you by surprise. In fact, they're designed by you so that the world might know who you are and so that we, your people, might be and speak the name of Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity. Give us courage. Give us unity. Give us boldness. Give us sacrifice. That when history looks back at such a time as this, they will find the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living lives of testimony to the God of grace. May it be so in us. In Jesus' name, amen.